name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. And welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another Talking Bat and we're going to stay in the continent of Africa. And in fact, we're going to speak to someone else who's also connected to the University of the Free State. And that is Alexandra Howard. Now, Alexandra is currently doing a PhD. We'll be talking a lot more about that and many other things, I'm sure, over the next hour or so. But first of all, just to get things started, how are you today, Alexandra? I'm good, thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me, Neil. That's quite all right. It's quite all right. Um, You know, Peter, Peter Taylor told me a bit about you a few months ago. And I did a little bit of research. I stalked you and found some video footage of you in YouTube and places like that. And I thought, yeah, let's do this. It's going to be good. <laughs> be interesting. Yeah, so, thank you. So where are you at the moment? Uh, I think you were telling me just before we started. <laughs> I yes. hope this is, you're at a friend's house using their internet <laughs> and, and they don't have a kettle. No, and hopefully no blackouts. But um, yeah, I'm actually up in Joburg for the week for we just had Mother's Day in South Africa yesterday and some work and meetings. But yes, I'm usually in the central cold South Africa um, near the university. And if people are watching this and they're not sure where that is, don't panic, folks, in, oh, I don't know, about five minutes time, we'll pull up a map of South Africa and we'll be able to show where Alexandra normally is. But just to just to introduce her to get things started, um, fairly early on uh, in her career, but done so much as you're going to uh, learn over the next wee while. Currently a PhD candidate on uh, ecosystem services attached to the University of the Free State, and in particular, the Afro-Montane Research Unit, and prior to that, did an MSc in bat ecology at the University of Pretoria. Uh, her paper, sorry, her project is entitled, it's there, but just to try and trip myself up, I'm going to read it out anyway. Charopteran Diversity and Demographics in the Foothills of the Drakensberg Mountain Range KwaZulu-Natal Province, South Africa, a case study based on natal Midland farms. Try saying all of that after you've been in the pub <laughs> for a couple of hours. Um, yeah, so uh, Alexandra, first of all, just tell me a little bit about this uh, MSc you did, because prior to that, I think you were doing dung beetles or something like that. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So um, in South Africa, we have a three-year BSc undergraduate and then an honours is separate. So I got the opportunity to work on dung beetles. And then for my master's um, in research, it is in coursework, like some of the places in the UK, um, that I really wanted to do bats um, and eventually found some awesome supervisors and I got the opportunity to do some bat research in an area of the country that hadn't really been, there was only one preliminary survey before I got there. 
Um, but the Natal Midlands is actually, um, it was uh, the British settled there at some point in South Africa's very interesting, complicated history. So uh, I was actually based outside Nottingham Road um, in an area with many British towns um, and rolling green hills in the same weather. So it was quite ironic for my brother and I when he came to help me because he said it looks so similar to the English countryside. Uh, but yes, I basically um, looked at the different methods of catching bats and monitoring bats so that if, for instance, you as an EIA or a consultant wanted to go survey, you could have a better idea using um, modeling, species modeling, to have an idea of what should be there and then comparing bat detectors to mist netting in terms of efforts and species that we caught in the different habitats. And then as well as comparing, identifying the bats in hand using morphology and the the books by Prof. Peter and Prof. Ara Monajim compared to DNA techniques, which I also did myself. And then opportunistically also took the ectoparasites, looked at the sex and the age ratios of the bats. But it was, it was quite challenging. It was quite interesting. It was five trips in different seasons, but to compare plantations, which are quite dominant in that area, compared to the natural forest and the grasslands. And yes, ironically, a few years later, I'm now doing my PhD on the other side of the same mountains um, okay. and also comparing different habitats and agriculture. But yes, I learned a lot. I definitely got thrown in the deep end. I was lucky enough to have really amazing supportive supervisors and friends who came to help. But um, okay. yeah, it was trial by fire. <laughs> Yeah. And had you done any proper bat research or had you used the equipment prior to no, this? No. So you were learning about all of that for the first time as well. Is yes. That correct? Yeah. yes. Luckily, um, I was sent to, it was still Swaziland then, now it's Eswatini, but to my co-supervisor, Prof. Aramanajam, he luckily gave me a quick tour and training on how to use a hop trap, mist nets, ID, measure, handle bats, all of that. And then was like, okay, off you go. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No, no, that just sounds amazing. So let, let's just touch very briefly because we'll go into more detail uh, shortly, but what precisely is your PhD uh, looking into? What, what, what exactly is the PhD about? Yeah. So it's looking at what roles bats do or can play on apple farms in the Free State area uh, where I'm based, but are the bats uh, helping the farmers? Um, is the agriculture too intense? No one's looked at apple um, systems in terms of bat ecosystem services. And there's also, we didn't realize there's been not not that much bat work in the area because it's grasslands into mountains. So it's quite challenging terrain. So also now just looking at what the local bat community is and what they're eating. And then um, obviously then a social science and an economic aspect to whether that's benefiting the farmers, by how much can we put a dollar value and can we change people's perceptions in terms of what they think about bats. So all of this, I'm right in saying all of this very much is, is it uh, under the umbrella of the stuff that Peter Taylor is involved with currently? Is that how, how yes. it works? Yes, he's yeah. my main supervisor. 
Um, and yeah, the reason why I'm back at university doing a PhD earlier than I had planned. Um, and then I have two other supervisors based in University of Pretoria and University of Eswatini. But yes, this falls under Prof. Peter Taylor's mountain bat lab. Um, so I'm focusing on the farms and the agriculture aspect. My colleague, Monday Veli Meduli is focusing on the climate change and the natural areas and the schools. So they're quite complementary projects, which helps us both because we we don't always catch a lot of bats or a lot of insects, but um, it, it gives us a more holistic picture and approach to obviously awareness, education, perceptions, and um, what the bats are doing in the area in the different landscapes. Yeah, yeah. And I know when we interviewed uh, Peter, uh, Myself and Peter talked a bit about the value of uh, that work and previous work that he'd been involved with as well. So if you're watching this interview, folks, and you want a little bit more background to to what we've just been talking about there over the last few minutes, uh, definitely worth checking out Peter Taylor's Talking Back interview. But first of all, I just want to quickly uh, highlight where you're normally based. You're currently, as you say, you're currently today you're in what you would call Joburg, is that correct? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Johannesburg, most people yeah. would know it if they've been to SA, it's our big yeah. international airport in our yeah. big city. Yeah, but normally uh, in terms of your research studies and the university and stuff, you're a little bit, well, you're quite a bit south uh, of hmm. Joburg. I mean, how, how far south is that if you're driving, is it? Um, it's three and a half to four hours. It's basically, yeah, I think around 300 kilometres Okay, okay. So, uh, and I take it it's not all motorway, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, yeah, it is all motorway. Yeah, most of it's motorway. So, okay, yeah. okay. It's um, classic. <laughs> no, it's, it's good stuff. And here, uh, this is where you're part of the Afromontane Research Unit. And I think this is you here with some, is it with some colleagues or fellow researchers? Do you want to talk a little bit about this? About this picture yes yeah. yeah, so that was our first bioblitz uh, biodiversity survey in the drakensberg mountains in this um Bertie's hook area in october last year yeah. and um yes yeah, so prof peter taylor's actually sitting on the floor yes yeah. There. Yeah. and then it's two colleagues dr caswell and his field assistant Bussy from the university of kwazulu natal they did okay. the pitfall trapping for ants I'm actually wearing my ant t-shirt in the back there. On that <laughs> okay, <day. right. laughs> and then Dr. Joro is from Madagascar. And um, he's also part of the team now. Um, he's been working with Peter for years and also small, small mammal and genetic um, experts. And yes, this is the, the public car park because um, to one of the most famous hiking trails um, in the country it's yeah. the chain ladders it's up to the amphitheater and uh, we just have a research board there telling people that you know not to disturb our equipment and all the interesting things they see um, because uh, there are researchers in the area okay. and um, yeah it's quite an undersurveyed area in this province most of the work on the mountains has been right next door on the provincial border basically a state border um, and then um, we obviously need permits and permissions to be sampling in the Sutsu, which is a completely separate country. But yes, we, we had a really awesome trip. We just did another one in February 
um, and we're starting to find some really interesting things and much to my surprise, I mean, I can barely hike up there, never mind breathe at almost 3,000 meters, but there's still bats flying, even when there's snow, even when it's freezing cold or hot. Um, so we're quite interested to, to find out where the caves are, where the bats are roosting, but what species and if they're moving with season, if they're moving with climate change and, and what's going on with the bats. And we have other experts that are looking at all the other taxa, so small rodents, reptiles, um, plants, uh, the whole, the whole picture. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Bat Ability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. What brought you into natural history to begin with? I mean, what was your childhood like, your teenage years? How did you, how did you end up uh, starting the career path that you're currently on? Was this something you were always destined to be or did it happen by accident? Tell us um, a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, probably a cliche. A lot of people say that, that they credit David, so David Attenborough documentary so much, um, but I definitely... That was a, definitely a big thing to watch in our household every every Sunday evening. Um, but I think I was quite lucky uh, that we we got to go on family trips to friends' game farms. So I was exposed to the bush felt at an early age. And yeah, for the longest time that I can remember, my grandparents always bought the National Geographic Kids magazine. I always had animal teddy bears. And I think I was really supported and encouraged because... I always remember having a passion for animals from a young age, um, but obviously it changes when you have to start choosing careers and things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely films, books, um, and just the exposure. We're so lucky in South Africa in terms of our di- biodiversity and landscapes and, and things like that. Um, so yes, it, I always knew I'd go and study as well, I didn't know if I'd study zoology or animal science, um, but yeah, I'm really, I haven't looked back since going to university and realizing, you know, zoology is so broad. We did animal behavior, ecology, environmental management. There's really a lot of different disciplines and scope. You overlap with vets, with welfare, with ethics. Um, and I think just a love of science, of being encouraged to be curious and I constantly ask questions much to some people's disapproval so I think science also complemented a love of natural history really well um so yes I I I job shadowed a vet in high school and I was like oh okay this is quite you know it's quite a sexist industry it's quite a tough industry but you're a doctor um and that was the other thing. As soon as you say you love animals as a kid, everyone's like, cool, be a vet. I'm like, I don't want to be a vet. I want to discover new species or run after animals in the bush. I don't want to be in a surgical lab all day, every day. And yeah. Yeah. I also think emotionally it's it's too taxing for me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, that's, that's, that's fascinating stuff. Fascinating <laughs> stuff. And, and, it's, and it's really interesting. And 
you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, you were determined to do your, you know, your, your MS uh, on on bats. What what clicked there? What what made you at obviously some point prior to that think to yourself, I want to study bats because even uh, obviously I know a lot of people <laughs> and. Uh, people that have got a general interest in natural history, um, ornithologists, for example, yes. uh, people that are even into mammals uh, would find bats as being quite a, well, quite an interesting route to go down. I mean, I don't find it interesting because I've done bats for, what, 20, almost 30 years. But, but as somebody who's got a general interest in that kind of stuff, you could have chosen, you know, elephants, deer species, uh, reptiles, amphibians, birds. I mean, what, what, made, you, what made you choose bats? Yeah. So I think a few things, but I, I met amazing mentors in a very short space of time. So at the, it's, so while I was doing the Dun Beetle project, um, I went to the De Beers Oppenheimer conference and Prof. Aramonijan was actually the plenary speaker that year. And he did an amazing talk on bats of Africa and why it's so important to take specimens, why museums are important, but why bats are so fascinating and why we need more people and more students to study them because we're still describing new species. We don't know where they go, what they're doing. And they're just so diverse in terms of behavior, reproductive strategies, what they eat, um, as ecosystem services and indicators. And um, I think that was definitely one of the major moments where I was like, oh, well, there's, there's still this undiscovered treasure trove of a mammal in, I think that was, that would have been 2015. And I tried to speak to him at lunch and, he, and I, we joke about it now, but um, I found him very abrupt, but he says I was standing in the way of his food. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, so yeah, and then um, one of the organizers of the conference, Dr. Duncan McFadden, uh, then a few weeks later, I saw them again at a museum public lecture from Dr. Brock Fenton was out from the USA, and uh, being the nerd I am, I dragged my boyfriend at the time to uh, lecture at the museum at night because it was about bats. And yes, it, it, again, it was a fascinating talk, really interesting about the work they had done in the USA and why Africa's bats are so fascinating. And yeah, so I went and spoke to Duncan and I was like, well, I'm going to do my master's. Do you have funding for me to do it on bats? And he was like, yeah, we have properties. We have gamers like, yeah, we let's chat about it. Um, so it took a while to find some supervisors, put a project together. Luckily, Prof. Christian member Pretoria took me on because at that stage in the Department of Zoology, no one else was working on bats. Okay. Um, and luckily, Prof. member Ara and Duncan all knew each other. So they were all like, oh, yeah, this will be great fun to have a student together. We've all been mates for years. And, um, yeah, I ended up being, I think I'm Prof. Monajem. I'm Iris' first South African student. Okay. Um, 
but yeah it was it was great uh, I'm really lucky they were so supportive they then my first year they sent me to the international bat research conference which luckily was in South Africa that year okay. uh, so I at least met all the people and I just found it after being in entomology which is also very collaborative and open and yes as you mentioned the elephants and rhinos there's a lot of politics around certain charismatic species and endangered species. And I just found the back community to be so much more collaborative and friendly. And they really, you know, people want to help you and there's more than enough work to go around. Obviously there's still politics and things, but I just found it really refreshing in academia and science and took to it immediately. And then, yes. Um, yeah. I had the masters and then um, also, I mean, even, I wasn't Peter's student and he still helped me during my master's at many conferences. Okay. And then, yeah, years later, he's like, oh, I heard you're looking for a PhD. And I was like, yeah, kind of. It's COVID. I don't really have a job. I want to go study overseas. <laughs> like, no, come. Like, I want you to come study. I'm like, okay, fine. But yes, yeah, so I am quite lucky that um, I I got I was I guess in the right time at the right place and and open to those opportunities and and had the network but at least I, I'd like to believe I had the fascination for bats in the first place yeah, um, yeah. but that I that I was exposed to some really great mentors who who shared their passion and I was like yes this sounds awesome I definitely want to work with these animals yeah that's amazing amazing stuff uh, I just I always find it so fascinating just to to get the backstory to the person because um, this is the kind of stuff and I'm quite sure you'll know this if you're if you're asked to do a presentation or a workshop at a conference or if you're getting interviewed specifically about your research mm-hmm. um, there's very seldom time uh, for the person you know or when you're on stage delivering a presentation to really talk that much about the kind of stuff you've just been talking about and yeah. And this is really part of what we try, what we try to get out of these interviews. You know, it's uh, it's the backstory to the person because quite often that uh, well that, that that just builds the whole picture. You know, it just everything then makes sense after that. You know, it's yeah, it's not just a random, it's not just a random uh, thing that's going on in a, some person's life that decided. You know, what, you know. <laughs> so and it's also yeah, I've tried to make an effort. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto the social media later with sharing that with other students and people because growing up I didn't have any other family that worked in wildlife or or anything or in academia or in science so it's quite hard before you go to university or even at university I mean sometimes it is about who you know especially in in conservation so I've tried to share my experiences and and my lessons because I didn't have that if it if I wasn't at those conferences and met those people, um, my academic career might've been very different, but also just in terms of, it's all the little things and the little details and the little realizations that can really help um, if someone just spoke to you about it and gave you a heads up. And that's what I try to do with the students now. I'm like, if you like animals, it's not just vet. There are many other options. Like, you you know, try explore a few options before choosing one degree um so yeah that's also something i've tried to share with people is and use social media media as a platform to do that yeah no absolutely absolutely uh but welcome on to a website that you've built uh, shortly but uh, (laughs) uh 
unashamedly, I uh, I cropped I cropped this off of that website, which we'll talk about shortly. And this is, I think, a summary of uh, various jobs, I suppose, or various volunteer positions and the paid positions you've had since what 2014, I think, onwards. Um, yeah. And quite quite wide varied and I'm quite sure you've probably done a load of other things as well uh but but any sort of highlights there any any fond memories I'm sure there's I'm sure there's countless just tell us a little bit about this the stuff you've been doing here yeah uh so the bottom three actually was while I was still uh doing my undergrad and my honors and my master's so something I try to learn early on was to just take any opportunity I can to, to get that experience. I felt, I guess I was lacking and didn't have like other people did. Um, so I helped as an undergrad research assistant on the Hot Birds Project, which is in the deserts, um, the Southern Kalahari Desert in, um, on the border of South Africa and Namibia. I helped a PhD candidate, well, he's yeah. at Dr. Nell, uh, Dr. Matt Noakes. And yeah, I got to go to places in SA I'd never been to before and then um, the Sony Pass um, in invertebrate work uh, was part of our undergrad fieldwork trip and then um, we got to go as uh, assistants and fieldwork supervisors for a few years afterwards which again was amazing really loved working in the Drakensberg and um, working in the mountains and we had an awesome team, which are still quite close friends. And then I got a, a so those were obviously all unpaid um, opportunities. And then luckily I had a paid internship while I was finishing writing up my master's um, from a national graduates uh, government scheme. And that was to manage a fruit fly laboratory. Okay. Uh, so that I actually have a, I'm lucky enough that I have a publication from that, from their work, but that was very interesting, very different. Okay. Um, and then, yes, after my master's, I decided I need real work experience and I want to see what it's like on the ground and in conservation. So I worked for an NGO, Volpro is a vulture research center. And is that put this photograph down here in the bottom? Yes. Right? From, I don't know if you can make it out, folks, but... But this is a picture of a vulture that yeah, Alexandra's holding. Uh, I don't. I mean, what species? Can you remember what species of vulture? Yeah, that would so be? that's a, a juvenile um, African white-backed vulture white that's critically okay. endangered. But yeah. this little guy uh, was captive bred and released, and decided to go um, try drink from a nearby cattle trough and kept getting stuck. Oh, okay. um, it was that yeah there's actually a very funny video of us with 20 bulls and one vulture trying to catch it <laughs> um so luckily the farmer's family came out to help us okay. <laughs> and i let the girls and the workers um the staff uh, touch the vulture and see it up close obviously i'm holding it and making sure it doesn't bite anyone but yeah. yes this guy was a lot of fun and very funny um i think this was a saturday afternoon or something but yes i i learned very quickly if you work in rehab, rehab, if you work with wildlife, you're on call 24 seven, um, yeah. you know, it's a completely different lifestyle. And, and I learned a lot there. Um, there was an amazing team. We, we did really awesome work and 
I yeah, fell in love with the vultures and I got to travel a lot through the country working on the vultures. Um, so that was pretty fundamental in, in growing my career and my experiences and my understanding of the sector and, and seeing what it was really like. Um, and I suppose getting used yeah. to engaging with members of the public and yes, stuff yeah. like this as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I'm not, yeah, and because I had worked on bats and already had to engage with farmers and people on, on a very misunderstood species, it vultures to me were the same. It's again, it's not a charismatic species. It's not a species people want to cuddle or get to know or understand. Um, there's a lot of negative perceptions and misunderstandings. So, so to me, I quite enjoy trying to change the public's mind and, and try you know, you only have a few seconds to make an impression on someone. Um, yeah. um, but I really felt like the plights of these misunderstood creatures that are so important. I mean, the, the ecosystem services and disease control and, and carcass removal that vultures do, you know, arguably, if not more valuable or just as valuable as all the different ecosystem services of bats. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was really much in the same stream of the scientific communication and engagement to try help people understand why we need them, despite what they look like. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about, uh, yeah, ha, ha, ha. I can imagine even with the best advice and guidance, the first time that you've got to wrestle with a vulture must be quite a memorable experience uh, to make sure you don't get it wrong. Because I think I think if you get that wrong, okay, there's the risk that you could damage the bird, but there's also a risk the bird could potentially inadvertently damage you. <laughs> Which they have, and they will. Okay. Um, yeah. Yes, so no, I definitely have some scars from, actually the worst scars I have is from a South American king vulture, but that's because it was someone's pet. And it just wants to play and it wants to bite your shoelaces and it doesn't understand that it has a sharp beak <laughs> and it hurts. <laughs> um, so that him and I yeah, had some words, but uh, no. So actually funny enough, um, my first time holding a vulture was a huge adult cape vulture. They're endemic to Southern Africa. They're beautiful birds. And um, I, I don't even know how I ended up in the situation. I think yeah, an injured bird came in and we obviously do diagnosis and treatment, but um, I think someone was just like, cool, you're going to learn to hold it today. And I was like, what? No, I'm not ready. I didn't have gloves <laughs> on. Um, so yeah, you got to, you got to hold the neck. You got to hold the head to make sure that sharp beak doesn't get any near anyone's face or wants anything. And then you, um, the, that, the one on the photo is likely quite small, but um, you, ba you use your elbows to pin their wings in and then you got to hold their, their thighs, um, their drumsticks, <laughs> so that their feet don't come up and scratch anyone. Even though their talons aren't as sharp as eagles and other raptors, yeah. um, they can do, still do some serious damage. And funny enough, there's a photo of me holding my first vulture um, a couple of hours before I graduated with my master's degree, I actually left work and then went change into a dress and put some makeup <laughs> on. And then I went to a graduation ceremony. So it was quite an awesome day. Sounds good. Sounds good. So uh, what about this next picture up? Uh, you're, you're looking in a, a hole there. It looks as if you've been radio tracking something there. Was that was that the pangolins or is that something yeah. else? Or? No, that's a pangolin. So it's a little burrow. 
Um, and yes, we, I, so after COVID hits, I got retrenched and was lucky enough to, to find some opportunities, volunteering, getting uh, work experience at, um, to game reserves. And this um, was a really awesome place that obviously there was no income, there was no tourists, there were no volunteers, um, but I basically worked as a scientific officer and they taught me a lot of fieldwork techniques and field guiding. And yes, the day I arrived on the farm, a rescued pangolin also arrived and was reintroduced. Um, so it was a fascinating journey, um, but we would monitor her see where a new borough is, make sure she's okay. And she's part of the African Pangolin Working Group um, reintroduction program, and she's still doing really well. She's um, had a pup, well, she was carrying a pup when she got to the, the reserve, but it's the first reintroduced Pangolin to have a pup in the wild that was recorded on camera. Wow. And um, yeah, she's probably pregnant again, but um, she's fascinating. She's so resilient and they're really amazing creatures that very few people get to see. Yeah, I've, so never, never, seen one. I've never seen one myself. Uh, and I've been in Africa a few times, but uh, but never never got to see one. So is that when you're with uh, Biobio Wildlife Conservation Research Centre? Was that? Yes. 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 Okay. And even tracking her and see, well, track, we still were in see her all the time. So even when you work with them, you hardly see them. I have some colleagues who've been studying them for years and, and also still hardly ever see them. Right. Okay. So, yeah. In between, in between the vultures and Beoba, uh, you were at this Elephants Alive and, Engin and Endangered Wildlife Trust NGO. Um, is that where you did the rhino stuff or was that no, also? No, that Beoba? was just um, helping colleagues and friends in Hoodsbrae. So that was just as a field assistant helping um, yeah, Dr. Lindy Thompson um, monitors vultures for Endangered Wildlife Trust in the Hoodsbrae area and Robin Cook is also doing his PhD, but he is based at Elephants Alive. And I, because I was basically freelance, I just took the opportunity during lockdown, during COVID in 2020 to get as much experience as possible. Because I was stuck in a separate province from my friends and family. So <laughs> I just made a plan um, and lived out my car for a couple of months, just moving around to whoever would take me and getting as much experience as possible because unfortunately it's also an industry where there's a lot of these paid volunteer programs and and unpaid internships and I kind of just made 2020 work for me in the opposite way whereas I didn't pay but I worked for free got as much experience as I could um and um managed to yeah make up get some awesome experiences despite the the global pandemic and um so the rhino dehorning and the rhino monitoring were also at Fairbad Wildlife Center, um, where yes. And so. that's the that's the two other pictures at the bot bottom here, yeah. So that's the yes. radio tracking, and yeah. yeah, okay, good, good, right. Well, I'm assuming this animal here has been tranquilized, yes. So. <laughs> Yeah, so that was um, my first dehorning exper uh, experience, um, but we, we did two dehorning days um, during 2020. Um, so yeah, she is tranquilized, but the boys got to do the sexy photographic work at the fronts, cutting the horn with the vets and making sure she's blindfolded and has oxygen. And the girls got to do the fun heart rate monitoring and oxygen monitoring at the rear end. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, no, it was an amazing experience. And 
yeah, Tim Hulm took some awesome photos and, and videos and things um, that I have asked for permission for. <laughs> but, um, yes, so you um, the helicopter's going up to find the next rhino and I was just giving them a general direction um, because we obviously try to do them as family groups and as quick as possible and before it's too hot. Um, but yes, the, the measures we have to go to to keep them safe, unfortunately. Yeah, I know it's 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 a sad 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 world, isn't it? Which uh, is an understatement, really. But uh, yeah, so you've crammed you've crammed you've crammed a lot in to this here, and I think I think what you described there during lockdown. I mean, that showed a lot of commitment, a lot of resilience, a lot of uh, innovation. I would imagine in in order to uh, get on board with quite a few of these things. So. You must feel quite good about yourself, yeah. I mean, it must. You must think, yeah. At least I did something. I could have sat at home and done nothing, and felt sorry for myself. But you didn't. You got out there and you did stuff, yeah. Yeah. At the time, I didn't think that. At the time, it was horrible. I, you know, I was blowing through all my savings, which was actually for a friend's wedding, um, but flights were cancelled anyway. Um, I, yeah. At the time, obviously, it was really tough. But, it's so hard to be objective in times like that. Um, it's the longest I've been away from friends and family, but I, I've always wanted to live and work in the bush and I got to do it and then realize what it's really about and how important my support network is. But also, yes, I tried to tell, I, I did try use the time to get new skills and new experiences and, and do as much as I could with what I had. Um, um, because yeah, literally two weeks into a new job, COVID hits and we all got retrenched and things fall to pieces. So after I think four or five weeks, I, I did feel sorry for myself and mope around. And then I was like, cool, I'm gonna just, I was lucky enough. I just reached out to people really, you know, swallowed my pride and said, okay, cool. I'll wash your dishes. If you have a bed, do you need a field assistance? Um, yeah, I cleaned bat skulls for a month, ended up um, on these reserves and just um, moving around. And that's actually how Peter Taylor heard that I was looking for a PhD because I was cleaning yeah. skulls for one of his other students. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was. it is more, it's, it's taking initiative and just making the best of your circumstances and, and using your network. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you said you said something there a few moment a, a few moments ago, uh, and there's a well coined uh, phrase in the business world: do what do what you can with what you've got. And you said something that almost was exactly the same as that, <laughs> and I can I can totally relate to that. Um, you know, you've just got to use what's available to you and make the best out of the situation, and. And I think in life, there are two types of people, really. There are people that do that, or there are people that say, well, I don't have everything I need, so I'm just not going to bother doing anything. <laughs> so, uh, no, I think, you know, looking back on it, you must feel quite proud of yourself, yeah? Yeah, now now it's awesome. I have really cool stories. It makes me very funny. Um <laughs> <laughs> that, that rhino photo i actually love to use on dating apps just to see people's reactions and to horrify my family um okay. so, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, no, now, now I can, yeah, it's been a long two years, but I can definitely yeah, say it, it was worth it. And, yeah, and is it working for you on the dating apps that I know for? <laughs> no, sometimes, no. <laughs> uh, no, it depends, but it's a good, it's a good like screening factor of, you know, whether yeah. someone knows what animal that is, is the first test. Right, Okay. <laughs> Loving it, absolutely loving it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your back research. Uh, some really nice photographs here. Um, okay, so as I'm assuming this is you on the apple farm, putting, yes. you know, yes. uh, doing something here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go for it. To talk, talk us through these photographs and tell right. us a little bit about your current research. Yeah. So first of all, I'm really lucky that I've also made friends with amazing photographers, which I've realized that's also been great. But yes, no, so um, my PhD is focused on apple farms, as I said earlier. So that first photo is up on a ladder, putting the uh, bat detector up. So we put one up in the middle of the orchard on the edge and then at a water source. So that's been for um, the research topic on bat activity. We want to see what bats are flying around the apple farms, on the apple farms, and whether they're eating or not. So, yes, likely they are. The next step is now to find out what they're eating. But, yes, so we do that uh, throughout the apple growing season. The uh, photo in the middle on top is... Uh, collecting the bat guano. So I'm going to do molecular diet analysis to see what the bats are eating. Does it change uh, throughout the year? I'm lucky that we're working in an area that only has insectivorous bats. It's an area that's too cold for fruit bats. So luckily that's not an issue with the apple trees. Um, so that does make things easier. And that's also on one of the poop scoop trays under a bat box that a maternity colony of Cape Serotines has moved into on an apple farm. And um, the next photo is actually the next evening when we release the bats that we caught from that bat box um, for, uh, with a hop trap. So measured them, then released them. Uh, the bottom photo is in a very cold dam, a <laughs> very cold river in the Drakensberg from the earlier photo um, and half trap that we were, um, that was also in October from the first BioBlitz uh, trip. We didn't catch anything on that trip, but we used the same spot this summer and we, we got some really cool Minioptris, some long Natal long-fingered bats. Okay. And yeah. um before the the river washed the hop trap over which i also again i've had to <laughs> rescue and uh take some crabs out of the hop trap and then um that's prof aramanajan next to me we were just uh, checking out the new uh wildlife acoustic uh mini sm4s uh, yeah. prof taylor's on my other side you can't see him but we were setting up for the the monitoring on the trip and just um checking settings and making sure we all agree and um it's great that you can use an app now so it makes it a lot easier yeah, um, yeah. in the field yeah so that's the sim is that the sim mini bats is up what they yes. call them i think yes yeah. okay yes. Uh, what software do you use to do the sound analysis is it kaleidoscope pro or are you using some other software for sound no, analysis? yeah so we use well kaleidoscope pro is obviously expensive and need a license but um <laughs> This is actually a bit of a debate in the lab because uh, Prof. Peter Taylor loves using Analook um, from Tipley ah, and Tipfig. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. But we still use Kaleidoscope to convert all our calls and to double check. And I I never got to play back calls during my masters. So I think Kaleidoscope's amazing because I can actually hear bats. Yes. Um, but at the moment, we actually use both. Um, and our first sampling season, we did everything manually. Um, and now <laughs> that we've caught bats this season, we can finally make our own echolocation call library. So now I can finally start making filter specific to our region and our confirmed bats and hopefully he'll let me start doing it automatically but um yeah we use we use both programs and um okay, okay. yeah no, that's, that's 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 fascinating and i think with the with the mini bat uh bat detector uh you can record in full spectrum and if you choose, you can then convert those full spectrum files to zero crossing files yes, if that's yeah. what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but, but as you say, with the zero crossing files on analog W, you're not able to hear anything. It's purely a it's purely a visual uh, interpretation. Um, so it's no, it's that's fascinating what you're doing there. So how do, how did the harp trap get washed away? I mean, what, what happened there? What what? <laughs> Admittedly, I did forget one guide rope. So it was only tied on one side and a big storm came through in the night. Obviously, we're in the mountains. It's windy. Um, and a whole bunch of water came down. <laughs> and uh, just, phew, yeah, it just fell over. It was fine. Um, but because I was alone, um, the rest of the team was up in the mountains and no one expected the trap to have fallen over. I had a... Um, luckily we had radios and I had to call it in and be like can someone please come help me carry this back up the mountain but yes it was an experience packing a half trap up alone um in a river <laughs> but I managed yeah. and um Shay my my friend who actually took these photos came to the rescue um the uh, shubs and carried it back up for me because <laughs> at that point I was not impressed with the half trap <laughs> So okay, let's let's talk a little bit about lone working then in the wilds of Africa. Is that is that normal? <laughs> uh, would you normally be alone at night? Uh, no, no, you can't, unfortunately, especially yeah. as a as a woman. Um, but yes, no, we don't work alone at night. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, we'll go to traps alone. Obviously, it's not far. It was easy to call him, but yeah, no, at night you wouldn't. This isn't a protected safe area, but. There's also jackals, there's baboon. I mean, I don't know when the last time leopard was seen, but yes. No, generally, I'm I'm in very silly situations <laughs> alongside hippos or something. Um, but in terms of yeah, safety, um, yeah, obviously I let all the farmers know when I'm coming, what I'm doing. Um, but also for me, it's just in terms of, you know, the ladder and the, the equipment, a harp trap is you can't really set up alone and a misnet. So it's more just in terms of logistics, you need someone to help you. Yeah, um, yeah. And then also to measure and hold the bat, um, you know, I can do most things alone, but if you take a wind biopsy or you have a, of a have an aggressive bat, you, you do need two people. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, we, we don't, um, we don't work alone. And Yes. Okay. I do joke, though, that zoologists need their own kind of life insurance because. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> oh, goodness, goodness. No, lucky like I am South African. Like I was born and raised in Johannesburg in the city. So, um, yeah, 
it's 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 something you you get used to and you're aware of you and you take the right precautions obviously not be silly but it is a reality unfortunately we're more concerned about our equipment being stolen than than ourselves okay or, or, or I, I, no, an animal attacking you or yeah. or something like that yeah or or just getting injured you know falling over an ankle or something and yes you know. i realized that while i was checking the um the acoustics the bat detectors alone on valentine's day with the ladder that if i fall off this yeah. is it's gonna be a difficult <laughs> explanation and i'm gonna have to wait until someone comes and finds me yeah yeah, yeah. No, amazing stuff. It's just it's just interesting just to get a perspective from another part of the world because obviously in you know in northwestern Europe, you know, the British Isles, uh we, we, have, we have lots of uh, debates about things like loan working in the ecology sector. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, we'll we'll have all of the issues and challenges that you would have, but uh, but we don't have to worry about uh wild animals or you know you know stuff like that you know i mean not not not, not like what you potentially do i mean we don't have leopards roaming around and jackals and rhinos and hippos and stuff like that roaming around uh and we've got sheep and cows and the occasional horse you know that's the best we have those too and you have those arguably, as well yeah yeah <laughs> probably charged more by cows than anything else yeah 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 um that's it's, amazing yeah. stuff amazing stuff Right, let's talk, as when I was doing my research on you, um, <laughs> I just stumbled across this and I kind of thought, I kind of was like, what? What's, what's going on here? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of looked into the website a bit and obviously I read a bit about uh, about you and what, what you try to achieve and stuff. But do you want to just talk a little bit about the backdrop to theblondzoologist.com and, you know, why you set this up and what you're seeking to try and promote, I suppose, through projects like this? Yeah, so a few things. I've Yeah, I've actually been thinking, oh, I really need to update it or change it because it it started not as a pet project, but not really completely well thought out. But um, while I was on um, the game reserve during lockdown, I realized how vital social media could be because so many friends and family were telling me, oh, please send videos of the rhino and the bush. Like, you're so lucky you're out in nature. We're stuck in the city. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, it, it's an easy, simple way to help. But also, I realized that most of my jobs and opportunities came through social media, um, from Facebook groups, wildlife management, um, university groups, and um, the the guy I was helping on the uh, reserve, he was using a social media and his photography in such a powerful way to inspire people, to um, attract funding. Um, we had a crowdfunding campaign to feed the rhinos throughout winter. So I decided, well, you know, you make your own brand. I, I don't know anything about marketing or social media and algorithms and things, but I'll just figure it out and ask some friends. And I, I completely, um, yeah, I took all my personal stuff off Instagram and I made it a zoology profile because I realized I was so lucky to be working with these awesome people in these great places and with these animals. Um, and to, like I said earlier, try give advice and share um, 
just lessons and things that no one told me and no one helped me with when I was choosing a degree or choosing a job or I didn't know what a starting salary should be or anything. Uh, So, yeah. And um, so that was the first step. And I realized, well, um, some of the other mentors, I know I I saw the ladies I was chatting to and, and getting advice from had really cool, simple websites. So I was like, well, got the time. It can't be that hard. So this was actually, um, I just did this for a month before moving to start my PhD. Clearly had a lot of time on my hands. Um, But when I came back from the bush back to the city, my friends were like, but you have so many cool stories. And I spoke, I mean, I naturally talk a lot, but after being in isolation for so long and not having many people to speak to, I had a lot of words to catch up on. And they told me to start sharing my stories and my photos. Um, So I think for my birthday, there was a, there was a sale on the blonde zoology domain and uh, some more tech savvy friends were like, we'll just buy it. One day you might use it. And I was like, Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I'll just, there's a template. I'll just make a website, but Never really, I still haven't quite figured out what it's for, what I'm doing with it. But the idea, the main goal and the PhDs are part of that is to have my own consulting business or NGO or or work for myself one day. And I just decided, well, I'd rather make my own narrative online and my own brand and online presence. And the the blog site can be a part of that, but also just a way for people to reach me and, and to share stories because I've met so many amazing people and, you know, you want to start networking and connecting people, but also, like I said, to help the volunteers who aren't sure of um, legitimate places to go to or students who are confused because I get a lot of um, queries and also just, I was trying to find a way that I could capitalize on this and not share all my content and advice for free all the time. But (laughs) I think that's just one of the problems about being a conservationist. You just want to help everyone and save yeah. everything um anyways but yeah i just i played around with it i put up some photos the articles i had done um and just my work experience it's basically an online cv at the moment um but i've been um i've actually just been recently published on um some vulture articles i've been writing for popular newspapers okay. uh, so yeah i've been I do have something more things to add, but um, I guess I'm at fault of being interested in too many things and wanting to try everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, it was just, uh, and I had I had to do something with my time before starting my PhD. <laughs> Anyway, I, I found it very refreshing, and uh, I just I found it interesting, and I just thought, wow, this this is this is this is good. I, I, I like this. I, I like the way the website works, and uh, yeah, and I can see I can see where you could go with this, and uh, yeah, and no one else is going to be able to call themselves this. Okay, so <laughs> you've. That was a plan to jump on it early and then yeah. I'll just figure out the rest later. You're not going to be able to dye your hair at any point, of course. Yeah. I know. That's the other thing I realised. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, fascinating stuff. And uh, yeah, I would suggest folks uh, ch- check it out. Check it out. Uh, the website is... Criticism there. is welcome. <laughs> Still a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I love the way that you actually... Uh, Use the word zoologist here, and you incorporated the the, Afri- the the map of Africa as one of those, for example, and stuff like that. I just thought that that was really smart. Yeah, um, 
So, uh, no, it's really good. And of course, you've got the mountains in there as well. So, uh, yeah, so it's kind of giving you that sort of uh, angle to it as well, isn't it? So, yeah, no, good stuff. Right, so we're almost almost coming to the end. Um, and uh, as you'll know, uh, now and again, when we do these talking about interviews, um, we will sometimes make charitable donations on behalf of the person that, that we're interviewing. And I asked Alexandra earlier uh, if she would like to make a charitable donation uh, somewhere. And she has chosen one of those projects that she got involved with uh, during lockdown, I suppose, before the PhD, the Biobar Wildlife uh, Conservation uh, Group, whatever they're called. Anyway, it's up there. And we did a bit of searching and we found our website. And at some point shortly after this interview, we will be making a donation from Batability in, in Alexandra's name. Uh, to this organisation and well worth visiting the website if you want to find out more about what uh, what these guys get up to. Alexandra, do you want to say a little bit about Bearable Wildlife? Um, yeah. Yeah, thank, well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, I owe, I owe them a lot to taking me in, teaching me a lot about the realities of conservation in South Africa. Um, the hunting aspect, game management. Um, yeah, and I got to, in a couple of months, I got to be part of game capture and rhino dehorning and amazing experiences that I probably wouldn't have got anywhere else. And, and um, yeah, they have a very interesting, amazing elephant herd. And, um, you know, there was, there's camera trapping projects for the leopard monitoring. I mentioned the pangolin reintroduction, the safe haven. I haven't said the reserve's name on purpose, just in terms of security and, and okay. privacy. Yeah. Uh, but it is obviously open to tourists. And um, yes, I, I got yeah helicopter rides, trying to find the rhinos and many, many near-death experiences thanks to the animals. But <laughs> it was really amazing. Um, and I'm really lucky to have been in such a beautiful part of the country. Um, with and found people who took me in and taught me a lot and helped me on to the next stages of my career. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. Right, so I know what the answer to the next question is going to be because we spoke uh, we spoke about this before I hit the record button. Um, but it's gonna. But I think this is going to surprise a few folk when uh, when you tell me uh, about any other interests that you have <laughs> outside of the world of natural history. Um, yeah, so I'd like, like to uh, just enlighten us as to some other key interests that you might have. Yeah, um, yeah I'm actually a very big Liverpool supporter. I've played football my whole life and, um, yeah, I've managed to convince my brothers to support them too, no. Um, but, yes, no, I've been a, a – and I've always been a Liverpool supporter, not just because they're doing well now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, I'd love – yeah, I've got a lot of um, Anfield memorabilia and we, we have Liverpool kits and definitely going to save up and go over one day to watch a game. Yeah, I was going to ask if, there, if you'd ever been – you know, tough home game. No, 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 yeah. not yet. I just managed to fly through Heathrow and transfer in the airport, but I was not allowed to leave. But um, <laughs> no, actually, um, my my family is from Scotland, so actually, after my PhD, I want to come over, visit some family and friends, and do a proper British tour. 
Okay. And I think you said your family, again, before we switched the record button, I think you had grandparents that are from or were from Glasgow. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. So Glasgow, in terms of the British Isles, you can drive from Glasgow to Liverpool oh, probably in about three hours. Yeah, it's about a, th- oh, wow. a three-hour drive. Um, you wouldn't real. be able to go. You wouldn't want to go to Liverpool and back on the same day, you know. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. uh, yeah it's a, it's an interesting city. It's only a city I've visited what twice in my entire life, and I've never been to the football stadium. But I would imagine I would imagine it would be pretty spectacular. Um, yeah. And we're not going to talk about the results at the weekend, okay? Um, I mean, this is this is pre-recorded, folks, as you know. But yeah, uh, well, I'm speaking maybe. to uh, I'm speaking to Alexandra <laughs> on the 9th of May, and up until two days ago, Liverpool and Man City were kind of just about a point apart on the race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but okay. it kind of went a bit pear-shaped at the weekend for Liverpool. Yeah, they. Yeah. And do you know why? Because yeah, I why? watched the game this weekend. That's oh. why. That's what so it is. The your yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think there's what still two games, three games left. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and City dominated last night. But it's fine. There's other leagues. We're in the Champions League final. Exactly. And that's that's more okay. important. That's yeah. that's better. Yeah, yeah. And 2020 Liverpool helped me through because finally we won the Premier League. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that was amazing. That was an amazing season. That was you know, Sorry, especially yes. from there. But uh, but you never know, that Man City might trip up, and by the time people watch this recording, <laughs> uh, they'll know they'll know who eventually won the English League uh, in 2022. Um, but uh, that's that's fascinating. You told me that earlier, and I just thought, wow, where does that come from? <laughs> that was the last thing I said. Oh, no, we're um, South Africa is a huge soccer nation. It's it's awesome. I've um, especially during masters, I played with kids and I couldn't speak Zulu and they couldn't speak English, but anywhere in Africa, everyone always knows the rules of football. Yeah. Um, so it, wherever, yeah, it's something that you can always play anywhere with everyone. And, um, yes, I always get lots of comments when I wear my Liverpool kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I would imagine. I would imagine. I would also imagine that Liverpool's probably not the most heavily supported, uh, team in South Africa. I mean, I, when I when I travelled around various bits of Africa, I used to find lots of people that were uh, Manchester United supporters or uh, Celtic or Rangers or... Oh, yes. I'm uh, supposed uh, to be a Rangers supporter too. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it used to always be United. You're right. Now that's everything. Um, definitely way more Liverpool supporters now. I mean, even in high school, we used to have rivalries. Right. Uh, but right. now there's a lot more Barcelona, Real Madrid, and um, obviously City supporters. Um, yeah. Also, now it is more varied, um, but uh, obviously people have their local team and then their favourite international, the English or the European, and yeah. most people have a few different teams. But um, yes, no, it definitely has grown. The next time you come out, I yeah. think... Um, some of those United shirts have disappeared. That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting. Right. I think that's taken us almost to the end. Is there anything that I haven't mentioned, Alexandra, that I should have mentioned or anything that you want to talk about? Uh, I always ask this at the end because I always worry that there was something really obvious that I didn't cover. Um, Anything? 
No, I don't think so. Um, I actually wanted to ask, I don't know if it's true. Apparently you need like three licenses in the UK to shine a torch on a bat, but maybe someone was just over-exaggerating. Okay, okay. That, that, that would be, that would be a, perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration. So what happens in the UK, I mean, the UK is split up into, uh, I suppose, different uh, home countries. So you've got Northern Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales. Yeah. And those countries, uh, you know, pretty much together form what is called the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, but from a licensing perspective, each of those individual countries have got their own uh, statutory nature conservation organization. Okay, they have their own statutory body and each of these bodies have got their own licensing system for protected species. So for example, if you're in Scotland and you've got a bat license uh, that was issued by the body in Scotland, that license wouldn't allow, that license only applies whilst you're in Scotland. If you then went down into England, mm. you would need to have a separate license to do the same work in England and the same again in Wales and the same again in Northern Ireland. So we have got different licensing systems, um, which means that for some people who work in the different component parts of the United Kingdom, they may need a different license if they're working one side of a, a border, for argument's sake. So for myself, uh, I've got I've got my Scottish licences. I've also got a full suite of licences for England. I've never had a licence to do bat work in Wales, but I have had on, I think, two, two occasions, I've had licences that have allowed me to do bat work in Northern Ireland. So this is maybe, this is maybe part of what somebody's talking about when they say you, you might need a number of licenses to work okay. in the UK. Now, for shining torches on bats, um, uh, certainly in the context or the vicinity of roosting bats, uh, that would definitely be regarded uh, from a, a UK perspective as disturbance. Yes. And in order to be allowed to disturb a bat, uh, you would need uh, at least some sort of license that would permit you to disturb the bat. And that would, for example, include being inside a bat roost or, uh, you know, where you potentially be disturbing a bat because you've got a head torch on or, or, or whatever. So, so this is possibly what someone's picking up on. Um, yeah, so if you disturb a bat, uh, or if you're doing work that's potentially going to disturb bats in the United Kingdom, you would normally be expected to have uh, some sort of license from one of those government bodies. And, no, it makes sense. We have uh, the same, yeah, we have national permits, state permits, and then obviously university ethics clearance, and they make sure any research is above board and you can't obviously be transporting and capturing wild animals with no license. Yeah, and, and that's exactly the same here for bats. And there's a lot of other protected species that that applies to as well. Um, there's different licenses for different species and mm -hmm. and each and each of these uh, component parts of the United Kingdom, the, the licensing process is, the, the, there's a lot of similarity, but there's also some key differences um, 
you know, so applying for a bat license in Scotland, you go through a you go through a different process to trying to, to get a similar bit of paper in England or Wales. It's a different application process. You might need a different number of referees. You might be able, you might have to show different levels of competence. And the licenses that each issue, they're not, they're not carbon copies of each other. So Okay. Uh, a Scottish license will allow you to do certain things at entry level that an English license wouldn't, for argument's sake. So it's it's all slightly different. Um, but we're used to it. I mean, some people moan about it. Some people complain about it. Um, my attitude is, um, you know, you can spend an awful lot of time in your life mourning about things or just get on with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about it, you know. Uh, uh, maybe maybe at some point in the future, all of these organisations will get their heads together and just come up with one system that's the same for everybody. But um, I can't see that happening anytime in the near future, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and we know they're there for good reason. And yeah, yeah. But no, it's absolutely. new protection and so do we. But um, yeah, no, we're just in an interesting situation. Yeah, in SA, there's, there's quite a lot of red tape that are supposed to you know protect the animals and and um monitor and the breeding the breeders or the hunters and the the tourists or whatever but we just find that the researchers are the ones who keep bearing the brunt and our work gets hampered and and we are the only ones trying to legitimately get all the permits and follow routine and protocol and no one else is but then our projects get it took us nine months to get permits last year um, but I think it's also the same problem. I don't know if you have it there, whereas your vets and your zoologists are so different, yet a lot of work overlaps. And then it's a whole procedure to get um, approved by a vet and, and all those kind of things. And it's just become quite frustrating and difficult in SA. And obviously after COVID was not the best time to, to go back to studying bats. So it's been really interesting to see how much COVID has also changed um, we need to wear a lot more PPE now to protect the bats and ourselves. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. And yeah. any work, like obviously all the photos are, are fine, but yeah, even if we're not taking photos, we have to make sure we're wearing all the necessary PPE, which is also added to the budget in an interesting yeah. way. And um, yeah, it's just interesting to ask and compare to other countries um, yeah. because paperwork's become such a, a big um sole point in a in a lot of places to the point of of um preventing a lot of research and collaboration and where we can send samples and what we can do yeah 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 i mean this uh, I, I suspect i suspect uh probably are uh we don't have as much uh we don't have as much of that to worry about but we still have to uh we still have to uh, comply with the legislation and and i also know um, that um, most bat workers, they should all be doing it. Uh, we sometimes see evidence on social media that occasionally people don't appear to be doing it. But any but any interaction with bats that is happening uh, in the United Kingdom now uh, should all be getting done uh, in accordance with the IUCN guidance, you know, mm-hmm. the, with the PPE, the face masks, the washing of the equipment, 
the checking of uh, infection rates, making sure everybody that's on the team is vaccinated, uh, you know, doing tests before uh, before sessions, all that kind of stuff. This is all stuff in the in the UK that uh, people like the Bat Conservation Trust is very much trying to uh, make our bat workers very uh, conscious of and trying to ensure that anybody that is doing anything like this with any wild animals, it doesn't necessarily apply just to bats, it would apply to any sort of uh, animal interaction, um, that everybody's, you know, taking heed of the best advice and the best guidance as we currently uh, believe it to be, you know, so, so yeah. Um, Oh, it's interesting times, and uh, I have done a uh, one or two sessions now, uh, you know, using the IUCN guidance, and yeah, it's you're having to think about stuff that three years ago we most definitely weren't having to think about, and it does make it that little bit that little bit harder uh, to to interact with animals. I mean, it's even something as basic as you're putting on a face mask and I wear glasses and you're trying to come up with something whereby your your glasses don't steam up because you've got a face mask on. Uh, Stuff stuff like this uh, just makes it more interesting. Yeah, I think it's just frustrating if it's protocols are designed by people, at least here, that don't do the field work and don't understand the realities of working in the field, wearing all that equipment and and what the actual risks are. Um, but yes, also the glasses mask situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you I very mean, much for later. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was something, that, that, that was something uh, when we were, we were just doing a test without bats, there were no bats involved. We were just basically saying, right, if we were going to do this with bats, what does it all, what does it all look like, you know? Uh, and yeah, and I thought, I can't see anything. My glasses have steamed up. You know, it's kind of like... There's a problem, yes. Yeah. Yes. But, but, but you learn, you learn techniques. You learn, you know, even yeah. I found that even just putting the glasses slightly further down my nose, they, they don't steam yeah. up as much. Yeah. Uh, no, because my glasses are only quite close to my eyes, but if I go further down my nose like that, I, you know, <laughs> the air must go up between the glasses and they don't steam up, but trial and error Uh, yeah (laughs) yes you'll have to have a workshop on that soon as well (laughs) yeah yeah well i'm I'm, I'm quite sure in the year to come in the years to come there's going to be workshops just on this stuff yeah i'm quite sure there will be (laughs) okay alexandra i've done too much talking at the end there okay um but uh, that's what happened very bureaucratic question i'm sorry <laughs> I, I needed to know how how true the the story was but um thank you so much it's been amazing i really yeah. enjoyed it uh, thank you and i've really enjoyed i've really enjoyed talking to you um hopefully we'll meet up at some point if you ever did come to scotland uh check out bat ability and um, okay. maybe take you out say uh, with bat detectors or bat catching one night if you want yes, to do that. Uh, that would be amazing. It's, uh, you know, so quite happily do that. So you just, if you ever come over here, don't be afraid to drop me an email or lift the phone. But folks, uh, that's us. That has been a fascinating uh, look at Alexandra Howard, her experience 
uh, stuff she's been involved with in the past, uh, stuff that she's currently doing, and a little bit of a talking bat role reversal in the end there, where the <laughs> interviewer became the interviewee, <laughs> which is... <laughs> and Alexandra said that she likes to talk, and I know that many of you watching this probably know that I quite like to talk as well. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening and goodbye. I hope everyone enjoys it. We hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited audio-only version of the original videoed session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to battability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.